Good morning, church. Turn with me in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 2. That's where we will pick up our study in the book of Nehemiah this morning. Having already read the text, let's go to the Lord now and ask for His blessing on our time, and then we'll dive into it together. Father, we do pray this morning that 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 is what would happen here, Lord, that we would behold your glory. Father, we know that your word is living and active, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to pierce the division of joint and marrow, soul and spirit. Lord, we pray this morning that your living word would act in us, to help us behold your glory. God, we pray that we would see your sovereignty this morning in the text of Scripture. And yet in beholding it, God, that we would not be guilty, as some say, of growing lazy in light of your sovereignty, Lord, but that we would labor all the more toward your purposes and what you have planned to take place in the ministry of your word and your church, God. We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen. Last week, as we began our study in the book of Nehemiah, I told you that Nehemiah is not primarily a story about leadership. I said that it's primarily a record of God's faithfulness to His people. Yet we spent the majority of our time last week considering what it is that godly leadership looks like. And that's because that's what chapter 1 really demands of us. But this week, however, we begin to see how much of the narrative is really focused on God. Specifically, We find here in Nehemiah chapter 2 a few lessons in the sovereignty of God as he works to bring about the restoration of his people in the city of Jerusalem. For clarity, we use a a term like sovereignty often, and so it's helpful, I think, if we define it this morning as we dive in. For clarity's sake, when when we speak of sovereignty, we're, we're referencing God's absolute control over all of his creation. God's absolute control over all of his creation is what we mean when we speak of sovereignty. And when we speak of God's sovereign care, we're talking about his absolute control to bring about the good of his people. And the text before us today provides, with, provides us with three lessons in God's sovereignty and in his sovereign care. As such, those are going to serve as the sermon outline this morning as well. First, we find in the text that God is sovereign over our problems. God is sovereign over our problems. Second, we find that sovereignty does not discredit practicalities. And lastly, we see that sovereignty demands proclamation. First, we observe from the text that God is sovereign over Our problems. The the chapter begins by recording the amount of time that had passed between 
Nehemiah receiving the news about the state of Jerusalem and the time when God clearly began to move toward rebuilding the city's walls. In chapter 1, we're told that Nehemiah had questioned some men that came from Judah in the month of Chislev, which corresponds with what we know as parts of November and December. Now, in verse 1 of chapter 2, it, it picks up, the narrative picks up in the month of Nisan, which corresponds to what we would call parts of March and April. It was then, according to the text, that wine was before the king. And as a, a faithful cupbearer, Nehemiah took up the wine to give it to the king. And Nehemiah gives an interesting piece of information here at the beginning of the chapter, saying that, Now I had not been sad in his presence, but that changed on this day. Because we read in verse 2, And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing that you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Now, we don't know why it is that on this particular occasion, Nehemiah made his sadness clear while he was in the king's presence. It could be that Nehemiah made a calculated decision at this point to, to make his grief known to the king. More likely is it that after four months of grieving over the despairing state of the people of God and the disappointment brought on by the unfulfilled promises of God, it's more likely that at this point the grief has simply become overwhelming to Nehemiah. Whereas he could control his grief while in the presence of the king before, now it had become too much to cover up for him even in as long as it took him to carry out his duties before the king. He, he could not hide his grief. This latter option seems more probable given the way that the scene unfolds before us. When the king recognized that his servant was downcast, in Nehemiah's word, words, he, he says, Then I was very much afraid. She was unacceptable in Persian royal custom to be anything other than happy before the king. It was considered the, the height of joy to bask in the light of the royal's presence. To look as though it was anything less was to insult the king. And therefore it was to invite a death sentence on yourself. Hence Nehemiah's great fear. Still, Nehemiah responds to the king in verse 3. Look there. He says, I said to the king, let the king live forever. A complimentary address meant to show that, that his desires were in no way motivated by opposition to the king. He, he goes on there to say, Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Here, Nehemiah seems to be looking to the past as though his primary concern was the honor of his family rather than looking forward in the timeline of history out of concern for the promises of God coming to pass. That's what it seems like. And 
though Jewish culture did highly esteem the, the graves of their deceased, it's likely that what we're witnessing here is a, is a, a wise effort on Nehemiah's part to strategically gain sympathy from the king. Because you see, the, the Persians highly esteemed the graves of their deceased as well. And so this is a, a point of sympathy Nehemiah was able to connect the king with. A strategic response or not, what, what the king said next took Nehemiah off guard. In verse 4 we, we read, Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? Now it's important to notice at this point. Had Nehemiah asked anything of the king? Or even told the king that he was going to ask something of him? No. And yet, the king has just thrown open the door for his servant to request what's needed to remedy the state of despair in Jerusalem. It's clear, even at this point, that, that God is sovereignly superintending the process of restoring the city of Jerusalem. Nehemiah makes no ask of the king, and the king invites him to make this ask. We can tell from Nehemiah's immediate response that, that this caught him off guard. Look at verse, the, the end of verse 4. He says, So I prayed to the God of heaven. Either Nehemiah was unsure of exactly what to ask the king, which is unlikely given how much of a planner we find out that he is, or he had not readied himself for the boldness required to make such a significant request of the king. Whatever the case is, Nehemiah shoots off a quick prayer so that his response to the king would reflect God's will and nothing else. And there's, there's much for us to learn from Nehemiah here. You know, when lacking certainty and confidence in how to proceed in, in a given situation, let me just ask you, how, how do you respond? Is your life so oriented around and committed to the will of God that you find yourself shooting up quick, short prayers for moment-by-moment -moment guidance from God? Is that the way your life is oriented, church? And I'm not talking about just thinking that you should pray. We all oftentimes think we should pray and fail to, right? I'm talking about acting on those thoughts. What a, a precious gift it is, church, that we can come before the king of the universe at a moment's notice and beg him to act on our behalf. Do you know any earthly king that we can do that with? No. But, but take note here. It's not as though this was the main substance of Nehemiah's prayer life. And that's, that's, that's key to, to realize as well. So often Christians get in the habit of a devotional life that consists of ritualistic and, and trite prayers instead of real devotion. You've heard it many times, right? Lord, lead us, guide us, direct us and protect us. Amen. Those kinds of prayers are offered up all the time. Not just, in fact, in corporate settings. Sadly, those oftentimes are prayers 
that people fall into the habit of praying tritely in their personal lives. Or even if they're sincere, the majority of some people's prayers are what I equate to catastrophic insurance. You know those prayers that sound like, oh God, please don't let the boss be mad about that. Oh God, please let the kids go to sleep. Oh God, please don't let me get hurt while I'm doing this. And, and, and those are not bad prayers in and of themselves. But the point that we glean from the story that Nehemiah has laid out for us here is that walking with God means that those prayers can't be by themselves, you see. They can't be the primary substance of your devotional life. Nehemiah's disposition to pray in the moment of uncertainty in his moment of need was, was a good inclination. But it was one that was not born out of an undisciplined heart of self-centered motivation. It was born out of a heart that had cultivated prioritizing God's will through disciplined practice of prayer. Remember in chapter 1 we learned that Nehemiah continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven and that he prayed before the Lord day and night for the people of Israel. So, Pastorally, church, one lesson for us here is that the practice of devotional prayer readies our minds and hearts to rightly see our need and seek God's help in real time. And whether Nehemiah's prayer was about content or confidence, God grants him his prayer. Verse 5 reads, And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And, and, and this is remarkable. In and of itself, we could stop right here. This is actually a remarkable Request that the king has granted to Nehemiah here. To be excused from royal service, even from, for a time, was an unthinkable request. Yet we find, even with such an unorthodox request, Artaxerxes kindly grants it to Nehemiah. Yet if, if confidence wasn't a part of Nehemiah's prayer, he sure possessed an uncommon measure of it, naturally. Because right after the king grants his request for leave, he requests more of the king. Look, starting in verse 7, we read, And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. So Nehemiah asked not just for time off to go rebuild the wall. He asked for the king to ensure his safe passage and for the king to provide the materials for the project. That's bold. I could just hear the words of my parents when I was a kid. Son, I give you an inch and you take a mile. 
Make no mistake, what Nehemiah was asking for here was not insignificant. In that part of the world, any amount of this sort of timber would have been highly valued. And to ask for enough to secure the fortress that protected the temple, enough to build the wall of the city, and to build a house that became the governor's house there in Jerusalem. This was no small request. Yet in verse 8, Nehemiah tells us, the king granted me what I asked. But not only does Nehemiah tell us how the king responded, he tells us what motivated the king's response. And that's the key, friends. At the end of verse 8, he says, For the good hand of my God was upon me. So Nehemiah tells us how to read this passage. He tells us what we should see in his interaction with the king. What we should see is the sovereign care of God. The, the point is that God is sovereign over all of our problems. This may have seemed an incredible problem to Nehemiah. Indeed it did. He spent four months in sadness under the terrible weight of this problem. But in one moment, Nehemiah goes from fearing for his life to becoming the link between the people of God and access to all that they need for security. And why? Because he's so clever, right? No, not according to his own record. According to Nehemiah, God is to credit for this. The reality of the circumstance was far beyond Nehemiah's ability to solve, but not God's. And it's, it's clear that this was the, the work of the Lord. What had Artaxerxes to, to gain from this endeavor? Nothing. Nothing. But as Solomon tells us in Proverbs 21, verse 1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. So we see from these verses that nothing is too great for God in the accomplishment of his purposes. God is always sovereignly working, even if for a time he is silently working, friends. Yet in the next couple of scenes set before us in chapter 2, we learn something else very important about the reality of God's sovereignty. It's here we learn that sovereignty does not discredit practicalities. While God is sovereign over all problems, sovereignty does not change the fact that practical issues have to be dealt with. We're given a foreshadowing of what will develop into a into more practical issues later in verses 9 and 10. Read it with me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with, sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Having the, the, the protection of the king, Nehemiah did not experience any harm on his journey 
But what became clear even this early was that his mission would be opposed. And this wasn't the only way that we observe that sovereignty doesn't remove practical realities. Observe what Nehemiah does upon his arrival to the city of Jerusalem. Read with me again, picking up in verse 11. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, and I and a few men with me. And I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up by night by the valley and inspected the wall. And I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. There are several points that could be made from these verses. But the primary takeaway comes from what we see Nehemiah doing here. He's surveying the damage to the city's wall and he's making note about what it will take to rebuild it. Now, some may ask, why is Nehemiah so worried about all the details? You know, God's proven that that he will provide. Why not just get to work and trust that God's going to work out the details? It's the idea I hear often from people who don't understand the relationship between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility when they say, well, don't worry about it. Just let go and let God. As well-meaning as that advice may be, it really does fail to understand the relationship between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. In considering this scene, I, I can't help but recall the words of the Lord Jesus in Luke chapter 14. It's there, he says, For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, This man begun to build and was not able to finish. Of course, when Jesus spoke these words, it was in the context of him warning against not counting the cost required of being his disciple. He says that if indeed you don't understand the measure of what will be asked for you, then you'll give up on the Christian life. And then people will begin to mock you. And Jesus warns against this really because they're mocking the individual will wind up disparaging Christianity altogether. It brings disgrace on the name of Christ. As though Christ and the Holy Spirit was not able to imbue this individual with resurrection power to live a life surrendered to Christ. All the while, it was the fault of the one who just never counted the cost of what it even meant to follow Jesus. And as such, this teaching of Jesus is really a fitting parallel to our passage this morning. 
Because though Nehemiah has been granted all that's needed from the king, and ultimately all that's needed from God, he must carry out his task with due diligence to ensure its success. He must survey the wall to determine what resources are needed, where they're needed, and how it is that they're to be put to use. Because bound up with the well-being of God's people in the city is the glory of the God of this people. Remember that Nehemiah is seeking not just to rebuild the city for the safety of the people. Nehemiah is seeking to accomplish the fulfillment of God's promises in Deuteronomy chapter 4. To restore his people. Therefore, failure in this endeavor would invite from the surrounding people and nations criticism. Not just on the people of Jerusalem, but on their God. You can hear the potential mockery. Is is Yahweh unable to establish and sustain His people? May it never be said. Therefore, Nehemiah investigates. And what a wealth of wisdom there is for us to find here in, in really what it means to navigate a life of faithfulness to God. In our lives... And particularly in our labors for the kingdom, God's sovereignty does not alleviate our need to be intentional and calculated. God's sovereignty doesn't alleviate the need to plan and strategize. Just think of the parental wisdom found in Proverbs 22 and verse 6. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, That's not a promise. It's a paradigm for parents to adopt that invites the blessings of God on their child's life. Obviously, God is in sovereign control over what happens with our children. But apparently, there are blessings available to them that are contingent upon training up these children in the way that they should go. But it's contingent on The parents strategizing, being intentional, training the children in the way that they should go. There's all kinds of contingencies there. Or or think about Jesus' promise in Matthew chapter 16. After Peter's profession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus goes on to promise that on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So... The church will never ultimately die or fail. But that doesn't mean that Jesus is going to honor or prosper any and every every endeavor that His people commit themselves to. I have seen the people of God commit themselves to some funny things that I'm pretty sure Jesus wasn't all about honoring and prospering. That's not what He means. He will ensure the life of the church, the continuance of the church, the success of His church. But it doesn't mean that He will prosper every endeavor of those who call themselves committed to Him. Therefore, we find here from Nehemiah two things that are instructive to us concerning the relationship between God's sovereignty and our responsibility. The first is a commitment to diligence in laboring for the kingdom. And this has been made clear already, Nehemiah's diligence. 
But the second is a single-minded devotion to that which God has promised to bless for His namesake. Both diligence and devotion to what God has promised to bless for His namesake. Don't you think that Nehemiah could have dreamed up a number of things to ask the king for beyond what he did ask him for? Things that would have been wonderful for this earthly city of God to have. But God didn't promise those things. He promised to reestablish His people. And He provided what was necessary for that. Therefore, Nehemiah brought his desires his devotion, and his diligence into alignment with just what God promised. And without getting on too much of a soapbox this morning, church, we do well to follow his example in this. While, it may, while we may not want to champion the phrase, let go and let God, we can get behind the exhortation to work like it all depends on you, Trusting that it all depends on God. And with that, we come to the final point of the sermon this morning, which is that sovereignty demands proclamation. After returning from his secret survey of the city, Nehemiah began to rally the people for the work of rebuilding. Verse 17 tells us how he addressed all the people, saying, You see the trouble we are in. How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And then he goes on to tell them what should give them hope in this undertaking. He's already given them the motivation of no longer suffering derision. But what confidence should they have in their ability to complete such a momentous task? Verse 18, and I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also the words that the king had spoken to me. We already know the words that the king had spoken were but the outworking of the first and primary re reason that Nehemiah gives for having confidence. That is that the hand of God had been upon him for good. You see it. Nehemiah recognized where their confidence lay. He didn't try to convince them of his administrative prowess, although he possessed it. He didn't rely on a charismatic leadership strategy, although he could clearly command the attention of a crowd. He didn't even primarily rely on the promises of resources and the good graces of the king, although he made those known to the people. What did he point them to first and foremost? The hand of my God that had been upon me for good. Nehemiah knew the source of their hope was God. And that the substance of their hope was His promise. And he did not feel compelled to bolster their confidence by means of anything that may have sounded more practical, or more palatable. He had done his due diligence as a leader, but he knew 
that the sovereign care of their God is what demanded their focus and attention because it was God's care and God's commitment to them that should not only bring them peace, but it should ultimately bring about their devotion to Him and devotion to His purposes. So Nehemiah proclaims the sovereignty of God before the people. But not only does he do this before God's people, he also committed to proclaiming the sovereignty of God to the enemies of God's people. After the people commit themselves to the work, those that oppose the work immediately rise up against them. Verse 18 says, But when Sanballat the Heronite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, They jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And how does Nehemiah respond? Remember, he's mentioned to the people of Jerusalem the good graces that he found with Artaxerxes. But even as they try to set his motives against the king, which is no insignificant threat, where does Nehemiah point the attention of these enemies. Verse 20 tells us, Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we His servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. He doesn't even address the claim that He's working in opposition to the king. And again, that's no small matter. As as a diplomat of sorts, he can't risk rumors being conjured up that he's trying to set himself up as some kind of ruler over in Jerusalem. But Nehemiah knows where ultimate authority lies. He knows that God alone deserves the, the focus because God alone deserves the glory for what will be accomplished. So instead of detailing for the detractors the agreement that he has with the king, Nehemiah continues to entrust his well-being to the hand of his God that had been upon him for good. He doesn't even try to walk through it with the enemies. He just trusts that the Lord will take care of that. And he continues to proclaim the sovereignty of his God to work for their good. The sovereignty of God is so clearly the truth that Nehemiah is bringing out in this record of these events for us. The sovereign care of God is the way that he interprets his interaction with the king in verse 8. It's what he points the people of God to in in his interaction with them in verse 18. And it's what he points the opponents of God's people to in verse 20. And this morning, it's what should get our attention as well. The sovereignty of God has always been the hope of deliverance for God's people. And therefore, it demands to be proclaimed by God's people. That's why part of our church's mission statement is to proclaim the gospel. And what is the gospel, friends, but the good news that God has sovereignly acted through the substitutionary life, death, and resurrection of His Son to deliver a people, His people, from their greatest enemies of sin and death. 
So church, like Nehemiah, let us commit this morning to rest in God's sovereign care, to labor toward His sovereign purposes, and to proclaim His sovereign power that saves and sustains to the end. Amen? Amen. Father, we pray now that you would do just that, that you would work in us, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, that we would rest in your sovereign care. Our hearts so often, Lord, want to go astray. We want to think that we are self-sufficient. We forget so easily, God, not only your power to care for us, but your commitment to care for us. And so, God, please, we pray that you would work in us to make it so that our hearts rest in your sovereign care. Strengthen us, Lord, and, and renew in us a commitment to labor toward your sovereign purposes. And give us words and wisdom to proclaim your sovereign power that saves and sustains us, God. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.